In recent years, there's been a growing sense of skepticism about science. The question arises, is the skepticism justified or should we maintain our faith in science and scientists? And how exactly do we do that? arriving at conclusions based on incomplete or inaccurate data. I had the pleasure of discussing these questions and more with two young philosophers, Anastasia and Michael, hosts of the Demystified Science Podcast, where they explore the edge of what's known to the world's best brains. Join us as we take a delightful journey into the world of faith, science, and scientists, providing an accessible gateway to understanding the complexities of human nature and the world around us. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. We are at UCSD. We are at Dr. Brian Keating's office. And I think that we're going to talk about the history and the context of science. The ideas that underpin the way that we come to conclusions about the world. And it seems like it might make sense to start with something that we've probably heard a lot about over the course of the last few years, which is this idea that we should believe in science or trust the science. Mm. And I feel like that comes with a lot of baggage because as scientists, we know that you have to believe in the process, but not necessarily in the theories that come out of it. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder how you're processing that as we sit at the point in time where the James Webb is starting to show kind of interesting things about the galaxy. Yeah, that right over there, yeah. Right, and so. <clears throat> you guys have a James Webb on display right in front of you. <laughs> Feel nice. free to touch it, but don't break it like my kids did. <laughs> yeah, well, first of all, it's great to see you guys in person, meeting live. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed be, uh, listening to your show and also being a guest. It's my second appearance on your show. And it's great to have you in San Diego and be in person. I think we've missed out on so much due to the pandemic was horrible, awful, tragic, and devastating to millions of people. Uh, the one, only good effect that I can tell, besides spending more time with my kids and you know feeling less in intensity in the workday schedule, was I, I got to start my podcast. And that allowed me to meet, you know, literally speak to millions of people, 25, 26 million people in the last uh, three years alone. As we speak in the end of 2023, I can't believe it's been over three years since, almost four years since it first came on the scene, that thing that we shall not mention. But uh, but it's great to be in person. And that, that's one of the lessons I took away. So, you know, the... Um, the end of it is certainly uh, is certainly a wonderful boon to all of humanity and especially podcasters. So thank you for being here. I always say, yeah, I never say I believe in gravity. I don't, I don't say that. I don't say I believe in evolution. I say I have evidence for evolution. There are copious amounts of, of pieces of, evo of evidence for evolution, uh, but that doesn't stop people from not believing in it or not treating it as if it is something worthy of belief and faith the way uh, something like religion would be um, would be apprised. So <clears throat> I don't uh, I don't really, you know, really react violently to that statement, believe in science. I sort of know what people say. Uh, they're, they're either saying something on a political basis, like we trust the scientists, we follow the scientists. It's sort of a shorthand, you know, trust the science, follow the science, I believe in science. So when it bleeds over into cultural phenomena, like belief in UFOs, belief in, you know, vast conspiracies and so forth, then it does sort of take on the patina that science and these kind of hypotheses, if you will, are on equal footing. 
uh, or that even religion and science are on equal footing because you believe in God. You don't say, I have proof of God, although there are people that claim that they do have proof of God's existence or that they've had God revealed to them in the form of, you know, personal revelation in Christ, for example, is very common. Uh, but those aren't fundamentally subject to the scientific process that we can uh, ascertain whether or not uh, conjecture is true via the tools of epistemology, of ontology, of figuring out what is the actual ground level, base level truth. And just like no one can convince me, I always hate it when people say, you know, you know, let's let's go out for sushi or whatever. I'm sorry if it's your favorite food. Uh, but for me, I hate it. I hate fish. I hate everything that lives in the ocean. It's always trying to attack me, kill me, spite me. I have a guy go surfing here. I always get some kind of uh, painful reaction to the denizens You'd of the You'd think deep. that would make you want to eat them more, actually. <laughs> That's right. I hate cows. I just, I just hate cows. So in this case, we, you know, uh, it's no one can make me feel better. And they always say, oh, well, like, I know this place that makes such good f fish. It, it doesn't even taste like fish. I'll say, I'll do you one better skip the middleman just don't have the fish you know it's like if that's the biggest compliment that what you're eating doesn't taste like what you think anyway so it's a matter of taste and it's almost like that like do you believe you know or do you have taste or faith in something uh so it's fundamentally not scientific doesn't mean it's bad doesn't mean it's wrong i mean think about all you guys know way more about philosophy than i'll, than I'll ever know but but you know you think about things in in, in, in philosophy classic you know Kant's categorical imperative. That's not like something that you can prove that that is the ultimate way or the golden rule for my religion uh, and Judaism and Christianity. Um, it's not something you can prove, right? And you can say something can appeal on the basis of reason that it might be, you know, a more, more proper way to live or the the best way to live even and, and actually, uh, you know, ascribe it some value. But it doesn't mean that it's scientific. And so, it's a challenge. I've, I've done videos about the, in fact, I did one called, I don't believe in gravity. A physics professor doesn't believe in gravity. <clears throat> and that's because we have so much evidence for it. But the other thing to take, to keep in mind is whether or not scientific facts are truth, right? We take it for granted that once something is, you know, scientifically, you know, brought into the canon of science, that it's true. It's a fact. But I always say, it's completely the opposite. Scientists don't go about proving something being true. Mathematicians do, but and philosophers can make certain statements that are provisionally conditional on logical assumptions, but they can't prove anything in science. I can't even prove that the earth is round. You know, if this is a beach ball not representing this cosmic microwave background, uh, if it was a beach ball representing the Earth, it would be have much more in common with the actual shape of the Earth than this table would that many people believe is true. The true shape of the Earth is flat, uh, but it still wouldn't be true. And neither would the description of the Earth is a perfect sphere because it's not. So it's, everything in science is provisional and that's okay. Uh, you have to be sort of comfortable in this anxious state as a scientist that you'll never know the fundamental truth, the actual answer, because it requires an infinite amount of time or energy or patience or, um, or, or activity. But that's okay. And, and that's the branch of life that you, you might define science as that which can't be proven, but is as close to the approximate truth as possible. It's like a different kind of truth, too, than you might access through something like religious truth, right? You talked about the golden rule. That's proved out, right? I mean, that seems to be true by experience, but it's a very different kind of truth. Like in science, we're just building models. I feel like we're we're always reaching towards the truth, but we don't never expect to reach it at the same time. Mm. And so the scary part of that is you have to open yourself up to the, the idea that the theory that you're in love with that seems to be so close to the truth, there might be a better option at any given point. And it seems like in our modern age, the difficulty with that is that 
we build our whole identities around our scientific careers, right? And, and mm -hmm. it's, it can become a, a very combative sport at the highest levels, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. There's... And so how do you navigate that as a scientist is the real trick. Like, how do you maintain that right. epistemic humility, if you want to call it that? Uh, many don't, <laughs> I think is the short answer. And that's a very, very, uh, you know, perceptive observation. Because if you look at the typical person who becomes a scientist, let's get into it, the most dangerous branch of science, sociology of scientists, mm -hmm. right? So what do scientists do? What are they like? What To what can we analogize them to? And you know, I always say scientists are like children. I have children, thank God, and then, you know, they're wonderful. And and they're they're just the most amazing, innocent cherubs, and they, they're adorable, and they have great ideas, incredible imagination, just mind-blowing curiosity, passion. Eventually, you know, you're talking to them, and they'll keep asking you questions, as, and me as a scientist, and they'll assume I know everything. And and last night, one of my uh, babies told me, you know, I'm not a good professor, so that that stung. Oh, no. But uh, but it's okay uh, because you know he said you're not even a real professor. I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm not I'm not one of these fake professors on the internet. But they'll keep asking what, what me. What was the what was the evidentiary basis that they used for that claim? Uh, well, this guy's got a little problem with me because I wouldn't give him his uh, his his play-doh that he wanted to play with in bed. <laughs> you know, not a great idea to do that to a five-year-old. Um, but anyway, uh, so. But it, but it's sort of revelatory of the nature of children, right? So, um, when when you have a child, their their base level curiosity is infinite. They just want to know everything, and because they know less than an adult, they're curious and they have hypotheses, and they don't know that their hypotheses have already been ruled out. So to them, they're Aristotle, they're Socrates, they're Galileo, they're Einstein. Right. But and so they'll keep asking you, they'll come with some idea and then you'll say, no, that's not. And they'll say, why? And keep saying, why? Because. And then they eventually get to the base level of reality with parenthood, which is because I said so. Mm. You know, and if you don't, you're <laughs> you're, you're going to lose your, your own marbles. Right. So let's apply it to scientists. Scientists are incredibly curious. They're incredibly passionate. They don't like taking no for an answer. They're anti-authoritarian by nature. They don't like rules being you know pounded down on their heads. They love their own toys. They treat their own toys very, very, you know, personally, uh, they don't like playing with others. They're jealous. They're petty. You know, so it's like there's no such thing. You know, life has yet to invent a single-edged sword, right? So there's there's wonderful qualities of children and scientists, and then there are negative and, and less desirable aspects of, of both uh, groups. I think, yeah, the 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 notion that scientists are somehow walking Wikipedia's that are infallible, that are also open to the epistemic humility that you mentioned. You know, I think it's farcical. Like we're just these automata that just apply scientific method. I mean, you guys, and I'm not going to put you on the spot, but uh, I Go could ahead. say, what's the scientific method? Hello, students of the impossible. It's Professor Brian Keating here with just a tiny little homework assignment to interrupt your podcast. And that's to make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast or following us on your podcast app of choice. Did some research and actually only about 50% of you are actually following or subscribing to the Into the Impossible podcast and really mean a lot if you could subscribe and keep up to date with me with all the greatest content i'm putting out tremendous amounts podcast has grown in popularity but it can be better and bigger with your help do that please do it now don't wait you'll forget if you're looking to really boost your position on the grade curve for some extra credit make sure to leave a rating or review of the podcast it really helps thanks a lot now back to the show 
do you want the Baconian method of like variables? I don't even think you should answer because I, there is no sign. I mean, there's multiple well, ones, right? So to some there's degree. not one, right? Yeah, well, I would say no, that I would say yeah, that okay, it, the scientific on. method, as you understand it, is very much adapted to technological progress, right? Where you iteratively That's test way, ideas yeah. out, and mm -hmm. you manip you know, you can characterize something with equations that parameterize your system, and then you can iterate on it until you get cr closer to approximating the phenomenon. And then maybe if you want to build something, you can use those parameterizations and so forth. I think it's a very industrial method in right. some sense. But yeah, but that's I think that there's a philosophical approach to science, which is more based in almost like reason and the kind of evidentiary presentations that are more common in law where you spend time philosophically trying to understand the implications of the thing that you have discovered through experimentation. Because mm -hmm. I've been teaching this course on microbiology for kids, and so it's a lab course. And it's... Kids, college kids. I know, they're, <laughs> I'm old enough that I'm like children everywhere. But it's really fascinating because there's something about science that has to do with just the process of this is the independent variable, this is the dependent variable, we are going to measure one thing and then see how nature responds. Mm -hmm. But then there's this other process of it, which is to ask, well, what does it mean that nature responds that way? Mm. And I think that what Shiloh is pointing to is that there's a method that allows us to say, nature responds this way, here's the equation, and we can apply that equation to be able to build an engine, a rocket, a telescope, a microscope, whatever. Right. And that's almost enough because then we can collect more data, and then that lets us do the next thing. Mm -hmm. no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't disagree with much of that. I would just say, you know, um, by some of those definitions, uh, it's not clear. For, and we don't have to debate it, but it's not clear that Aristotle was a scientist by those definitions, right? Because he would clearly do things in a scientific fashion, but the scientific method wasn't invented for, you know, 17 centuries hence, right? But also he would come up with observations that would neatly fit the data and the data were, were act absolutely accurate. And this happened with uh, our good buddy Albert too, where he conjectured a, a static universe because there was nothing, absolutely nothing to reveal otherwise. And yet it's as different from the actual universe we think we live in as humanly possible. So how could both both of those, you know, um, propositions be part of the same canon of the scientific method. I, I, I'm, I am only asserting that there is no one definition. I mean, there's multiple ways to get at scientific truth. There's serendipitous discoveries. There's deductive approaches to the scientific method. There's inductive approaches to the scientific method. But I think we love this. My friend Eric Weinstein calls you know the scientific method uh, the radio edit of you know popular consciousness and scientific you know uh, awareness because it's something that you can point to. Oh, you didn't apply the scientific, or you're not applying, or you claim to be a scientist. So it's kind of used as a as a shibboleth to to kind of you know as a shortcut. And I, I think it's fine, but uh, but again, getting back to the original question of whether or not there's you know there's a problem with this notion of belief, I think you know scientists are as dogmatic as as any other person, and to expect them to be otherwise is is you wouldn't expect like lawyers to be more moral in general or more rational than other people, right? <laughs> half the time, half of them have to defend people that they know are guilty, right? So so how could you you know do something more um, purely morally? I actually think it is good that we have such a jurisprudence system, but now we're getting pretty far astray. I do think it's valuable to have a branch of society in order to have a culture and a civilization where you have a branch of a practice, a craft, where you have artisans of that craft that apply 
common tools, common techniques, but maybe violently will disagree on occasion. I think that's a sign of a healthy field. And, and if you don't have that, you have kind of groupthink or politics or something that is, um, I think, ultimately might be interesting, but it's not certainly something I want to spend time on. So personally, I think all of our, our, our predilections come into play, just like I don't like fish. I'm not going to take you guys to a sushi restaurant. Uh, but at the same time, it may be that some abstract sense, oh, maybe fish is the best for me. So I'm actually acting against my best interest. I think scientists do that all the time. Mm. Yeah, it seems like as long as people are focused on the fact that our job is to understand nature, to physically understand nature. I mean, for physicists, right? Our job is to understand the mechanistic basis for all the phenomena that we observe. Mm -hmm. And as long as we remain inspired about that and excited about getting to know this place, this incredible place that we wake up into one day <laughs> when we're born. And if we center that, then we, we, and we really meditate on that on a daily basis, then we're less likely to fall prey to, I love my pet theory or, you know, I love my advanced degree or whatever it happens right. to be that people tend to get sidetracked by. Yeah. But in, in the context of cosmology, this is kind of playing out, right? To some extent right now, we, we talked about the James Webb. What's going on? So it seems like there are, well, there's, like we mentioned gravity, maybe that's a good place to begin, right? There's these anomalous motions in, in the celestial world, right? <laughs> Let's say the galactic rotation or big bang dynamics, things that people are really having to rethink the fundamental basis of these phenomena for the first time in a long time, right? It's been maybe a century that people have been sitting on general relativity as the end all be all, and it's kind of gotten concretized in that fashion. So what's unfolding? What are the specifics of this trauma that are playing out right now? Yeah, um, so it is fascinating because it is an example of kind of the battle between, say, groupthink and and uh, you know what I call big cosmology, you know, and and then these lone geniuses like the Einsteins or the Galileos that tend to get the lionized share of the credit, right? The most kind of raging controversy right now in my field of cosmology is whether or not the Big Bang happened, which is like saying, you know, did uh, did uh, life form on Earth or did evolution occur? You know, so that, that claim is an extraordinary claim that the Big Bang did not happen. And it's been stoked in the media <clears throat> by a real handful of, I wouldn't say borderline crackpots, okay? I would say people that are very, very unorthodox in their approaches. Some are not uh, practicing scientists. Some have ulterior motives. They they have a, you know, a business interest, if you can imagine it, in, in understanding their particular application of, of the alternative to the Big Bang called the plasma universe. Um, some of which was developed in this very building by Alvin, and who is a Nobel laureate, who had uh, some some outlandish ideas about the origin of the universe as well. And in this very office was inhabited before me by a Titanic astronomer named Jeffrey Burbage, a theoretician, who, along with his uh, wife Margaret, who is even more exceptional than he was, uh, they came up with uh, Fred Hoyle and um, and um, uh, Willie Fowler at Caltech, they came up with the concept of the nucleosynthesis of stars making the heavy elements, like I'm going to give you guys. So here's your gift. Your holiday gift is a meteorite. So that's for you, you. Stasia and Sheila. There you go. So these are the byproducts of a process that they first indicated, which is called uh, stellar nucleosynthesis. Yeah. So there you go. I'll zoom in there. <laughs> 
So show it yeah, to the camera. Right. So I actually give these away uh, to anyone with a .edu email address. It smells, it's smelling it. It smells, smells meaty. So interesting. Yeah. It smells meaty, right? Yeah. Well, it was traveling, you know, 26,000 miles per hour at one point. So these are real meteors. These are the, cat, you know, the, the kind of fossil relic of a, of a stellar process called the supernova, type 2 supernova, blasting material out into the solar system. So um, the Burbages and their colleagues came up with the theory to explain why this is here and why the iron in this meteorite is identical to the iron in your blood. So it's true what Carl Sagan said, I have a finger puppet him somewhere too, you know, we're made of star stuff, right? So so the star stuff is, uh, is, is literally flowing through our veins. They came up with that process. They did not believe in the Big Bang. Two of the, at least two of the four of them, I don't know about Margaret, but Hoyle is the one who came up with the term Big Bang as a pejorative, which means orgasm apparently in British English. Although I gave, get, made that statement at the Royal Institution in London this past summer, and they kind of looked at me strange. So I, I think it's fallen out of favor. <laughs> we don't say that here. <laughs> That's right, we're proper ladies and gentlemen here. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so he coined the term as a pejorative to say this is ridiculous the universe didn't have some orgiastic beginning right and yet so now we think it does and and the evidence for it is supported by not that authority really plays into it right this, this whole notion 97 percent of scientists believe that 90 but that it's been subjected to hundreds and hundreds of independent cross-linked and uncross-linked and uncorrelated types of examination ranging from the isotopic abundance of all sorts of different things from the water you're drinking to the balloons that and helium that you can go get at a party store to the lithium that we take to be normal. No, I don't know. I'm taking it. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, no, I can't, I can't, I have to be careful making any microaggressions, but there's lithium, there's beryllium, all this stuff. They came up with that. And then it ties into the causal chain that leads to this meteorite, which was predicted as a consequence of the stellar formation endpoint called the supernova. That Hoyle, the guy who didn't believe in the origin of the universe through a Big Bang, believed in what's called the quasi steady state universe. These are photographic plates. Some of these were made by. It's not the Cepheid variable plate, but it's one of the plates that Margaret Burbage used with an amazing astronomer named Vera Rubin. Mm. So Vera Rubin was in this very space in UC San Diego. She learned how to map out the rotations of galaxies for Margaret Burbage, who was the wife of the man who had this office, Jeffrey Burbage. And the two of them taught them that she could be, she was discriminated against because she was Jewish and a woman. And uh, for many reasons, she became the household name that we know today because of the work that she learned here and rotation curves of galaxies. Mm. Now, if you look at rotation curves of galaxies and you ask, <clears throat> how fast should this galaxy be rotating? How many times should a star like the sun have lapped around the uh, galactic center in the past N billion years since the galaxy formed or since the Big Bang formed. So this guy that you're mentioning wrote this book, The Big Bang Never Happened. That book came out when you were probably a newborn or maybe not even born, 1992 or three. And that book was uh, issued on the occasion of the release of the Hubble Deep Field, the most one of the most iconic images in all of science. I'm going to be teaching a course on, I'm starting an online university at some, some point soon, uh, just for fun because so many people are interested in this stuff and That's getting awesome. such good feedback. I'm going to do a course on the, the top 20 astronomical images of all time. And this is like number one or two. I'm not going to give it away. You have to buy the course. 99, 99, 99. No, I'm not, I'm not, just it may be free. I'm not even sure. Um, but but the point is, uh, it's one of the most iconic images. Uh, and that image shows galaxies, and it shows galaxies at an epoch when traditionally thought by people like Lerner back in 1994, they shouldn't exist. 
Mm. that these types of galaxies, their structure was far too mature. And therefore, it needed not only to be uh, true that the Big Bang never happened to have an, an eternally old universe, which can explain a host of other uh, examples, but that type of, of universe also adheres to this plasma cosmology of his hero, Alfin, who also, I don't know what about UC San Diego attracted so many, I don't know, you, you came here, so, like, attracted so many individuals who don't believe in the Big Bang, but it had a surplus of them. Anyway. Uh, nowadays, so now the Webb Telescope deep field comes out, images the exact same field, sees the exact same galaxies that Lerner and Hubble and everyone saw because they're publicly domain. And it sees more stuff because it's seeing at infrared wavelengths as opposed to just optical wavelengths. Therefore, it can see farther back in redshift, which is farther back in time. It can see back to a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. Now, Lerner is now claiming, oh, this has caused astronomers to panic. And in fact, I did a, a live uh, interview with Allison Kirkpatrick, who's a professor in Kansas. And and she was quoted as, you know, she can't sleep. Everything's every she But he just took all this stuff out of context. And then a couple of months after that, or almost a year after that, um, there was a publication of an, uh, a re-estimate of the age of the universe, also using a, a kind of outdated model for the evolution of the universe. It, now he did this, uh, Professor Gupta in, uh, in in Canada, he did have a universe that had a big bang, but now he claimed the universe had to be twice as old and then only twice as old. So it had to be 26 billion years. Well, my friend Joe Rogan picked up on that and then he all of a sudden was, you know, kind of going off on how, how amazing that is. And then Elon Musk chimes in and says, well, this is just incredible, but you know, what's really sketchy is dark matter. So I'm like, these guys are just like throwing all this nonsense on, you know, they're just like armchair experts. They can say whatever they want, but, and it's fine. And, and I, I like both of them, but, but the point being, having a galaxy that rotates either faster or appears more mature in its structure is not in any way a falsification of the big bang narrative any more than if i say well there are there are primates on the surface of a blue green planet that's orbiting around a type 2g star and it is um, in the goldilocks zone and those individual primates according to my theory of evolution they should not even exist, let alone have these electronic, electrified pieces of silicon and glass that they communicate telepathically. That's impossible. Therefore, the Earth didn't form. I mean, it's ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous. So what they might have a complaint against the, uh, the, the version of the models for galaxy formation, galaxy rotation, galaxy composition. But that's, it's like saying you, sh you found this type of fern, you know, in the fossil record that shouldn't have existed until 100 million years later. Uh, you would never say, well, that throws off the theory of plate tectonics. You would just say, we don't understand plant biology well enough or our models are wrong. Maybe, maybe they're wrong. Uh, but to say, A, that this is new information is totally false. It's just every 20, 30 years, whenever there's a new technology, allows us to see farther back into time doesn't mean that they couldn't have had these. Now, if they saw a galaxy prior to the CMB, which is 380,000 years, a thousand times younger than the oldest galaxies that they see, claim to find and see and do indeed see, um, then that that would cause me to reevaluate understanding of structure formation. Maybe the origin of, of how the heavy elements were produced, because these galaxies have heavy elements, which produce red or light in, in some cases. And so we would, we would have to reevaluate. It still wouldn't make me reconsider and falsify the notion that we understand the first few microseconds of the universe. But they're always playing upon this to get a lot of attention. I, I'll have some responses. I'm working on a, a what do you call those reaction videos? <laughs> so Lerner keeps making the circuits. He was in Europe this summer, and you know they've asked me to, you know, put out a put out a hit piece on him. I'm not going to do that, but I'll put out a video 
that shows exactly what we know, the 10, 20, 50 different pieces of evidence in favor of the Big Bang. And the astonishing thing is that there's a disagreement within the scientific community about the most fundamental fact in cosmology, the, the, the most important parameter in cosmology. I say, like, if you want to know how long you'd live, um, you know, hopefully you guys are going to live to 120, as we say. But what would you do? What would a doctor, a real, not like me, or you guys maybe, but uh, what would a real doctor ask you? What would be the first thing they'd say? What would they say to you? Say, we'll start with, with you, Shayla. Like searching for your health? Yeah. Like, what would they ask you? What kind of questions? Probably what do you eat? Do you exercise? Yeah. Things like that. Your vital signs, maybe. Oh, okay. What else yeah, would they I ask? I guess so. Uh, maybe I haven't maybe. been to a doctor in a really long what time. Else? <laughs> would they give a different answer to you now or when you were 10 years old? How long, how many more years are you going to live? Oh, in that sense? Yes. What, uh, do you believe in the singularity? It depends on if you have like a futurist <laughs> doctor. Because I know that there's a regenerative medicine center on uh, campus. Okay. And so, like, yes, there this is. This is the thing, yeah. right? It's like to some degree there's an expected lifespan, but there exactly. are also things that we change in the process of living and doing all of the science. And the environment and everything. I'm not even getting that. You guys yeah, are yeah, so yeah. bright. You guys are always like <laughs> anticipating 20 questions. I'm just saying to know how many more years you have to live, left to live, they also need to know how old you are now, right? Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is right now, astronomers are making predictions about the future of the universe and the universe with dark energy. Is it a cosmological constant? Is it, is it, a, um, is it a quintessence model that might evolve? Are there other types of dark energy, types of dark matter? But they need to know how old the universe is. And right now, astronomers, no debate. I mean, there's a huge debate. There's a huge what's called Hubble tension. The Hubble constant is effectively the reciprocal of the age of the universe. One group of astronomers using uh, the, the Cepheid variables, the same types of observations that Vera Rubin and, Mar and Margaret Burbage did to make these plates here. And this is real historic artifact. Uh, I'm lucky to have it here. Um, but the uh, they come up with an age of the universe that's effectively younger than the age of the universe predicted by astronomers, cosmologists that study the cosmic microwave background radiation and its patterns. Both of those are indicative. This is like asking a toddler and take what's your vital signs, what's your family history. It'll predict a lot. And in fact, very accurately, the actuarial tables, insurance tables, they do predict lifespan very accurately. I mean, there's always some uncertainty. But within the uncertainty of each one, I should say this, the uncertainties are at the 1% level for both the cosmic microwave background, it's actually half a percent, the, the precision that we are quoting, we, my colleagues, and I quote on the age of the universe effectively from this are at the half a percent level. And from the Cepheid variables in the later universe, that's at the three quarters to 1% level. But many different types of Cepheids, supernovae, white dwarf, all these different things. And then a complete different type of cosmology from the CMB. They both have percent level or less errors and they differ at 9%. So they're differing at, you know. This is called the Hubble tension. It's called the Hubble tension. So if you look at it and each one could be at, let's say the lowest one is at its highest edge of its error bar and the highest one's at the lowest, then they are, they're discrepant at five standard deviations. This is something to take seriously because that five standard deviation, the 10% difference between them means the universe could either be uh, uh, 11 billion years old or 14 billion years old. It's a huge spread, but it's not enough to account for this, even in any case, for the age and maturity of these different galaxies. So um, all in all, that's a healthy thing. 
that these these groups disagree, but each one has incredibly exquisite precision. Mm. Now, what could cause the universe to, to change over its lifetime? Like if you ask your toddler, do, how many packs a day do you smoke? If they answer, you're a bad parent, right? But by the time they're your age, maybe you smoke, maybe you don't. Um, maybe we vape or, or we do an edible, no edibles, no? Okay, come on guys, you're letting me down. I, I thought about, you know, what are you guys, Generation Z or something? Uh, anyway, we wasted rocks. your youth. I, lo I love Just how young you think we are. <laughs> Well, I know how old you are approximately because okay. you told me when you graduated. I did want to say something like, yeah. to, so I got to know Eric. He came and actually did a guest lecture for me while I was teaching at Columbia. Well, I was actually teaching at Barnard across the street. And one of the things that really mattered to me when I was a kid was it was, you know, say what you will about his theories or whatever. But the fact that I found a book in the library that was saying, hey, there's, there is dissent possible. Like yeah. I had never imagined science. I had always thought of it as this monolithic story that was handed down and you know iterated on. And he so has this, he, sorry. he also has this really beautiful section at the beginning of his That's book. Say, oh, yeah. go ahead, go ahead. No, no, you take it, the pendulum thing. Yeah, where he he points out this way that consensus moves from one place to another because science comes with cultural, social, metaphysical burdens that are carried by the people that are putting the theories together. And so when yeah, we talk about- yeah, At a certain point, and then, and then, but he will claim that there's an active, uh, it's, it's very confusing, because on one hand he'll say, there's an active conspiracy to suppress the truth coming out of him on behalf of people from literally like the union of professional cosmologists, which doesn't exist. <laughs> and then he'll say, well, look at me, I got this paper published. So he says things will be rejected and not even evaluated. And they'll say, but look, I have this paper that was published in um, in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society with several typos, by the way, in it. So it, it tells me the referee process was kind of shoddy. Um, but at any rate, fine. So you can't, but you can't have it both ways. I can't say there's a vast conspiracy against the ideas that Brian Keating is promulgating. And furthermore, that same conspiracy is also allowing me to publish, you know, be like they're publishing, you know, the, the, you know, the 9-11 truthers, uh, uh, information that's all out there. And then they're also suppressing that there was a conspiracy to call. I'm not even going to wade into that. I'm just using it as an example. Mm -hmm. I think blaming the world for anything is kind of the <laughs> lowest, lowest possible yeah, place on the totem pole. true what he says, but, but I don't think it's very, you know, it's very significant and that he's trying to argue that because things have changed in the past, um, and because people that we respected and paradigms we respected in the past were overthrown. Therefore, this time when people call those people crazy, this time they're calling him crazy. I get emails like that all the time. You know, you're going to think I'm crazy. They called Einstein crazy. He wasn't good. I mean, they make up all sorts of stuff. There's actually a really funny crackpot index that floats around oh, yeah. that has like, I don't know, 30 or 40 different characteristics on it. And one of the main ones is equivocating your position in the world to the position that Einstein was in exactly. at the time when he created his right. theories. Yeah. And so I guess the point is not that Eric Lerner is correct or that you know the Big Bang never happened, but it's more that there is this really beautiful aspect of science that has to do with our spiritual relationship to the ideas that seem possible at the time. And I always think about it where... What do you mean by spiritual? Because I, mean, I think of that maybe not in the context of science. As well, almost I know, science. I know, because it's like it's a word that we tend to not look at very closely because yeah. it's like, well, we're scientists. We're generally like uh, atheistic. Yeah. We don't like let that enter. I don't care about atheistic, just objectively, Objective. factually, evidentiary, etc. But I'm like, I think about Newton trying to figure out how light worked. 
And he didn't have the evidence, he, he was missing pieces. And so he could never fully come to a model that made sense. Mm -hmm. And it tortured him. Like, do you know what Newton did for the last half of his life? After he wrote the Principia, he after he wrote alchemy, Optics. He did a lot of religion. He and, uh, joined the Royal Mint as oh, yeah, their like the lead the counterfeit officer. And he would dress up and he would go to pubs pretending to be this down on his luck dude to catch counterfeiters in the act. And then torture them. I God. He <laughs> oversee their torture, yeah. I have a video coming out where I talked about that with uh, Joe uh, Rogan as well. Yeah, he was he was kind of a, a, a jerk, you know, shall we say. But I think that there is this, this metaphysical aspect where he had a worldview that was governed by the limits of what he could imagine and the limits of what everybody around him could imagine. And so when I say spiritual, I kind of mean this, this zeitgeist influence on the way that people think. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about paradigm shifts, the notion of paradigm shifts is that the paradigm shift kind of comes out of nowhere, right? Like Thomas Kuhn, when he writes about it, it's that there's the sudden stepwise projection where it just ratchets forward. Right. And I'm like, I think that what actually happens is that there's a group of people who see things in a specific way. And at some point, that way of looking at things becomes impossible to ignore. And so they've been doing all of this work in the background. And then all of a sudden, the moment arrives where the tension with the old ideas is so high that the only thing that's left to do is to switch. And from the outside, somebody looking in, it's just like, oh, well, all the scientists decided at one fine moment that like it was time to switch. Yeah. But I, I think in practice that uh, I, I don't mean to say that, you know, Kuhn's ideas are outdated or outmoded, um, but I don't think they're universal. I mm -hmm. mean, when you look at the Big Bang uh, for a whole, um, to call it a paradigm shift, I don't think, uh, so, you know, my my 19, you know, uh, 79 Fiat, you know, shifted even slower than that. I mean, it's taken forever to actually come up with it. And the fact that, you know, it's still not agreed upon, you know, the finest details of things. And there's there's one or two lacunae in the in the in the Big Bang model that that learner hangs his hat on still. And then there's just giant Grand Canyon gaps in his like the one thing that he can't explain is the tired light and how does tired light actually occur? He doesn't understand the mechanism in a non-expanding universe. He has to account for redshift, and that's like the number one observable in all of cosmology is is the redshift and the because uh, we can't measure distances directly, mm -hmm. so you have a proxy. Anyway, and that's where the Big Bang started, from what I understand, right? Was off of the Hubble relationship. Yeah, so the Hubble relationship was the was the key idea. It was the key observation. The idea came earlier from Lemaitre, and as you guys probably have talked about and know about, uh, and others, and it was. A consequence of Friedman's application of Einstein's theory of general relativity, which can actually be proven using Newton's laws of, of universal gravitation. So all these things had to come together. So you're talking about like the 1700s, Principia, all the way up through now. And to say that, you know, one thing that I've, I've, I've been teaching about it to general audiences recently, the Big Bang, and one of the things I, I talk about is how this steady state model was still popular up until the 60s and even into the 1970s. And it really wasn't until the 1992, 1990 measurement of the spectrum of the cosmic microwave background by past guest on the show, uh, John Mather and others, on the Kobe uh, FIRAS instrument, 
that I was known to be a perfect black body. And up until that time, even Jeff Burbage and other people in this office and Fred Hoyle and others maintained that no, the steady state could still accommodate. The redshift was caused by dust grains and so forth. And, and it turns out even into the year 2000, my friend, Professor Anthony Aguirre at Santa Cruz, you guys should interview him if you haven't. Um, he's a phenomenal intellect. He wrote one of the greatest papers I've ever written, read about it. Um, you know, how dust can explain, you know, the Hubble experiment. And this is right before the WMAP experiment was launched. Now nobody believes and no professional cosmologist really working believes that the CMB is produced as a byproduct of dust or something. But getting back to it, so one of the foremost proponents of you know the the uh, the steady state from a philosophical standpoint was actually the late great novelist uh, Steven Weinberg. Mm -hmm. What Weinberg said is that the reason that people like the steady state model is because it least resembles the account of Genesis one one mm -hmm. has no beginning. And most scientists he recognized are atheists, but or agnostics, if as the case may be, and and that having that was a philosophical virtue, according to Weinberg, is that it didn't rely on anything connected, and it was as far apart from a biblical narrative mm -hmm. as could be countenanced by someone who is a card-carrying atheist his whole life. Um, and so it really wasn't. And he claims, if indeed the steady, the uh, the if indeed the cosmic microwave backgrounds spectrum is found to be thermal, then that will spell the death knell for the steady state theory. But it hasn't. <laughs> so has the paradigm shift really occurred or are we waiting for it? Is it necessary for every single detail to be nailed down to the sixth decimal place to understand it? Like I said, we know the age of the universe, but it differs in different models and differs because of not just calibration errors or analytical errors or noise. It differs because of the way that we interpret data arising in an evolving universe with dark matter and dark energy itself, which were not our contingent ideas that are not part of, you know, they're kind of bolted onto the Big Bang model itself, mm. the so-called lambda cold dark matter paradigm. To wrap this to the place where we started, where you asked about the scientific method. And I think that the paradigm shifts when the theory can let you do something that the other theory didn't let you do. Like if there's some mm. aspect of it's more science- expansive. We're, specifically technologically, like if you think about the theories that we have of like immaterial gravity of space time, where if you can figure out how to manipulate space time to produce, let's say, anti-gravity devices, like let's say that's possible, or be able to use propulsion off of manipulation of space time directly somehow, which I think is okay. like a pretty sci-fi idea. Yeah, it certainly is. Yeah. But I'm like, in theory, if we understand it, I don't see why it's significantly different from like a nuclear bomb like if you told somebody about a nuclear bomb 200 years ago they'd be like what are you talking about and yeah the question i always ask is you know and the analogy i always would use is you know we're talking we're using these microphones are connected to computers or uh, you know, cameras or they're all transistors right so transistors mm -hmm. effectively you know one of the most simple in some sense quantum mechanical device to explain did anybody look into the you know the Schrodinger equation and then say you know Bardeen you know Shockley etc. They look into it and say oh well, let's design this thing to do that. No, it was completely technological, and only afterwards do we understand exactly how to manipulate and improve upon it vastly. So. Uh, while it's true that you know Einstein recognized e equals mc squared, it wasn't like you know Oppenheimer looked at the e equals mc squared and said, "Oh, oh that's, that's how we build the bomb." Right. Mm -hmm. So the problem with with science is that sometimes, yes, it does produce technology, but the question of scientific coherence 
of uh, so-called the virtues of a theory and a model, they're kind of speculative. And the reason I think I say that is because you can't agree upon it any more than I think I made the case earlier, you may or may not agree, that there's no one scientific method. In other words, we wish we were mathematicians. We have deep, deep abiding mathematic envy. We all physicists want to be mathematicians because they have a proof of what is mathematics. In other words, or not mathematics in terms of Gödel's incompleteness theorem. And they can specify that there's axioms that cannot be proven within the formal contextual you know, scope of mathematics or things that are not provable within that scope. We have no such thing. The closest people, the, the most common thing at a bar, someone will say popper, it should be falsified. But even that's a joke, right? Because I could say to you, uh, you know, what, what's your what's your horoscope sign? What is your horoscope sign? When is your birthday? Uh, are you asking what it was 2,000 years ago when they invented the horoscope system? Were you an no, Ophiuchus? Uh, yes. Oh my God, I've never <laughs> met an Ophiuchus. Okay, so people out there are like totally freaking confused right now. Well, the, Probably the, Libra. Let me say Libra. What do you celebrate now? The funny thing about the horoscopes, Shiloh told me about yeah. this, was that when they were, because it's like the house of the constellations yeah. where they are, like when the That's sun right, rises. Where the sun, is, where the sun is located. On but the they've changed. That's right. Slightly. And so right. they've shifted over time. But when you were born, what constellation? What is your zone? What 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 is your birthday? It's <laughs> in January. January. Okay, mm. so it's coming up. So uh, I forget Aquarius. So anyway, like that. So I could tell you your horoscope. I could tell mm. you know mm. people don't know. They think I'm an astronomer. No, I also do astrology. Mm. My side hustle. I <laughs> sell got stars. Some tarot I sell you. Cards? Yeah, I exactly. I so I could tell you like tomorrow you are going to you know get get uh, you know a huge promotion. Your podcast is you guys are going on Jimmy Kimmel Live tomorrow night. Okay, that's my I, I'm. Predicting, I, I guarantee it based on the stars. I I see this happening, and I you know Jimmy Kimmel, he's a star, right? Um, tomorrow night, you can prove me right or wrong, right? If you guys got on Jimmy Kimmel, um, so therefore it's falsified. Mm -hmm. Therefore, astrology is science. Case, oh, it's ridiculous, right? So we wish we had that. We wish we had something like Girdle provided for mathematics, but we don't have it. So we come up with all these like you know copes <laughs> mm -hmm. to deal with the fact that we don't have it and many other people have written about it updated it what should really constitute actual scientific you know be part of the scientific corpus it's evolved that even that evolves and there are many such virtues but simplicity organizational um uh, coherence self-coherence not, not, not having inconsistencies or you know internal problems with it um subjected to test and criticism some even include beauty, which I don't. Mm. Um, but uh, but all those things comprise what are sometimes called by uh, Professor Michael Keyes, K-E-A-S, sort of similar related, called the theoretical virtues. I did a podcast with a couple of folks, Luke Barnes and Garrett Lewis, great uh, astronomers, cosmologists. You guys could talk to them too. But uh, but it's, it's called the Cosmic Revolutionaries Handbook. So how do you overthrow the uh, theory of cosmology, the Big Bang, the steady state, what kind of virtues should your model have? How should you go about confronting it? How should you be open to criticism, to refutation, or to even, you know, examples that bolster you? And for that, yeah, I think it's a fascinating subject and it's, you know, we'll have to do a part three to be continued. Yeah, Sounds good. Yeah, thanks for giving us your time, man. Yeah. Appreciate it. It's good great. to see you. Thanks. Glad to yeah. meet you in person. Good to meet you in yeah. person.